All right, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll get going if that's okay. Um, before I get into this, I have something very important to tell you, and that's about poinsettia care. I don't know if you knew this, but poinsettias are very difficult to water to get exactly right. So here's a Martha Stewart moment for you guys. One ice cube a day. Drop it in there. You, that's what you do? Yeah, so especially in the Midwest where it's cold and dry and, and it's very difficult to over. So one ice cube a day. How about that for a Martha Stewart moment from. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I feel I feel Pastor Bader's uh, pain. I was telling uh, Carrie's I have. Uh, well, the regular ones, but but if you had the, the big poinsettias, I would only put two in there, even though it's three plants. But. Um, we had members at the one uh, church I was a par uh, parish pastor at, we had members who owned a nursery. So we just had flowers all over the time. And so I was in charge of uh, um, watering about 50 poinsettias. So be nice to him. This is not, you know, and if it's not just right, he gets an earful. So, all right. All right, so uh, uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, I kind of look through my... Um, my, my past stuff, what I did for a one-shot Bible class, um, and uh, I, I came up, I think this would be a fun one. I got some extra ones in the back there, I think, Noah, yeah. So, um, and uh, I thought this would be kind of fun. If you want to go a different direction, though, please just, just yell at me. We can go down any rabbit hole you wanted. But let me give you kind of uh, some background of where I came up with this idea. Uh, it came from two places. One was trying to figure out in my mind um, where we're going as a society and where does Christianity and specifically Lutheranism fit into that. And I kind of alluded to that in, in, the, in the sermon today that there's some universal questions we ask. Where are we from? Where are we going? How shall we live? Um, the ethical question. There's the, what's called the epistemological question, how do I know truth? But underneath all of this, there is a question of the mind-body, or if you want, the physical-spiritual. One of the major questions that every religion and philosophy asks is, how do we put together the spiritual and the physical together? So do we just eliminate the spiritual, and so it's just kind of an atheistic, just there is no, there is no spiritual? Um, do we go down the ancient, ancient Gnostic route, which is to say the spiritual is all there is, really important, and the physical doesn't have any meaning? Those are deep questions when you think about it, right? Um, am I body and soul, or am I just body? Am I more soul, and I just happen to have this, this I don't know, this crustacean kind of thing that I fill in that I throw away? And so uh, I started to think about the theology of Christianity and, and not just what's being portrayed out there in the world right now when you, when you go to a Christian bookstore, but Lutheran theology, ancient father theology, and stuff like that. And it dawned on me that they were really big on the incarnation. They spent a lot of time talking about how God takes on flesh, and that God's modus operandi, right, his MO, how he normally does things, 
is to do spiritual things through physical things. If you ever notice that. He tends to do spiritual things through physical things. So he's going to do a very spiritual thing like create faith in, in hearts and he's going to do it with a physical water of baptism. Yeah? Um, he says, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to love children and feed them. How is he going to do this very spiritual thing, taking care of people for all eternity? Well, he's going to do it through mothers and fathers and stuff like that. So the second thing that happened that, that uh, made me write this is um, the 500th year anniversary of the uh, Reformation, which came in 15, uh, 19, or 2017, right? 1517 being when Martin Luther uh, posted the 95 Theses. So everybody was kind of like, let's talk about Lutheranism and, and stuff like that. And I was sitting in a classroom as, a, as a, uh, uh, an adult learner, and one of our professors said, give me Lutheranism in like two sentences, you know? And so I wrote down, if evangelical, then incarnational, then sacramental, then liturgical, then historical, and later I thought um, vocational. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's start with the word evangelical. Uh, does anybody know what the word evangelical means? It does not mean Republican, just so you know. <laughs> right? Uh, that's what it sort of means right now, right? Uh, what, is it, what does evangelical mean? We all know this, right? Um, you see the, the word EV or EU. Whenever you see a word with EV or EU, it's from the Greek. Um, uh, EU or EV, EU means good. So euphoria kind of thing, right? And angel actually means messenger or message. So this is good message, right? Or in English we say gospel, right? So if God is gospel-y, and that what we mean by that is he wants all men to be saved. He does not desire anybody to, to be punished. He desires all men to be saved. If God is evangelical, then it seems to me that he's got to come to us. A, because I can't go to him, and B, that wouldn't be really great news if I had to go to him. Right? So let's play with this a little bit because I think this is really, really important. If I have to do anything towards God, if the arrow goes from me to God in any way, then it's no longer a gift. It's no longer gospel then it is an obligation on my part and an obligation on God's part. The problem is, is this is our default understanding of how we operate in day-to-day -day life. Ain't nothing for free, right? You always have an obligation kind of thing. So here's how I like to teach it uh, to, the, to the college kids. I would say, because all of them come in with this idea of Christianity is about morals. And so I have to beat that out of them. <laughs> I have to beat it out of them. Because I would say, what is Christianity? They're like, God's got a plan for me and he wants me to love him and love people. Beautiful. Totally wrong, but beautiful, right? That comes later. That comes later. It first has to be God loves you first. So this is how I explain it. Uh, imagine that you're coming home from the hospital with a newborn baby. 
and um, um, uh, and you got him in, in this little car seat, right? And and you and you come home and you go to the front porch and you put the baby down on the front porch, and you bend down and you say, um, when you're ready <laughs> to make your decision to be a part of this family and sign up for uh, you know chores and stuff like that, uh, we will love you. Knock when you're ready, <laughs> and you close the door, right? This, this makes you a horrible, you get thrown into jail for this. <laughs> Why would we ever think that our Father in the he heaven would do that? Would say, I love you after. Then it is no longer a gift. Love is no longer a gift. Then it is a business agreement I have with God. It's a quid pro quo relationship. You do this and then I do that. You do this and I do that. That's not love by definition. That's not gift. That is wage and obligation. So you all have, you all probably had to at least heard, if not memorized, uh, uh, Romans where, where St. Paul says, um, the wages of sin is death, um, but the, the gift of, of the God is life, right? What he's playing with there is this wage-gift analogy. What he's saying here is if you go down the way of wages, this is what you get paid, death, right? So why are you thinking that you're in a wage relationship, I do something and then God uh, pays me the proper wages, when I'm in a gift situation where it's by definition no strings attached unconditional? That's, that's really hard for us, isn't it? Okay, I think we maybe talked about this last time I was here because it's so basic. Um, now, just to, just to tie that into to a nice little bow, there are plenty of places where God says, do this, believe me, love me, do all of these things. And so we have uh, people who will say, most notably in the Reformation, um, uh, the Catholic side, specifically this guy named uh, Erasmus, who would say, if God commands something, that means we have the ability to do it because why would God command something if he knows we can't do it? So if, if, if you say to the little baby in the front porch, uh, make your decision or follow the rules, um, if God's saying that, the baby must be able to do it, right? So this is kind of a conundrum, but it's an easy fix. Here's the deal. God does command all these things of us. And then he provides the answer for us. So, God said, be perfect. I don't know if you know that. Multiple times, be perfect. What the heck? So then he gives you the righteousness of Christ. In a similar way, when he says, stop doubting and believe, Thomas, he's going to give you the faith in, 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 in the Holy Spirit. So whatever God demands of you, he gives to you in Christ Jesus. And this is beautiful parenting, isn't it? Right? Because not only do you just give stuff, it's not a wage, you, lo you, you love your children, you feed them even if they didn't say please. Right? But you still make them say please and thank you. Right? Because you're building a relationship of trust there. And sometimes you say, here is, here is, what, here is the standard, pal. And knowing full well that the child's not going to reach the standard. That's the law to show you that you can't do it. And then when that law hits you and you realize you can't do it, here comes God, here comes the parent and says, now let me do it for you. You got it, right? So 
If God is evangelical, we can't go to him because then it's no longer gospel, it's wage. So he has to come to us. And that means primarily that he's going to take on flesh. So if evangelical, then incarnational. So let's play with the word incarnational for a second. Uh, you all know it because all of you have been to a Mexican restaurant, and if you order something con carne, you are getting it with steak or beef or something like that. Carne means flesh, bones and blood and skin, this thing that I can touch, right? Uh, this, is, this is carnal, right? By the way, it's where we get carnival from, the things of the flesh that we, we indulge in before Ash Wednesday Lent, right? This is where we get the word carnival from. So God takes on flesh. This is incarnational. If evangelical, then incarnational. All right, I'm going to take one second there to see if anybody wants a, a better explanation or wants to throw in a comment there before I go a little deeper into incarnational. Because I'll just keep rolling if you, don't, if you don't wave. We're all good? Okay. This, we don't understand this, living in our day and age. This idea of an incarnation is, is maybe one of the most um, earth-shattering doctrines ever. Because the ancient world would have looked at the idea of God taking flesh as bonkers crazy. Sure, you got the, the Greek myth, myths and stuff like that, and, and all of these myths will have some like half-God, half-human kind of whatever, but those are like Aesop's fables. Those are, those are, those are things that just are, are myths that tell us uh, something about our culture. The idea that the ultimate God that is pure spiritual would take on flesh was insulting. It's crazy. Um, you don't, this is one of the things that, that makes Christianity completely different than any other religion. Um, I'll tell you maybe one quick story. I was uh, going to um, University of Minnesota Hospital, <coughs> and I, I met a guy, a student, who was, I believe, he was certainly Islamic. Uh, I would have guessed Lebanon or some, somewhere there. And he was there to direct traffic. Long story. But yeah, I, he saw that I have a collar on. So he's like, hey, I got a question for you. Right? And he's like, how come you guys believe that Mary could, could give birth to God? And I knew where he was going because in Islam, the idea of a sovereign, powerful God, Allah, taking on flesh was insulting to him. It would have been insulting to him to take on flesh. So and I gave him my best 10-second answer, right? Like that's the whole point, that God would stoop low for us. But what's really interesting is that means that the body and the physical world is good by, by its, its original intention or its original form, right? So the rest of the world, in the history of the world, has said the physical is something that is a curse upon us. It's something that is a prison house. So Plato and the Greeks wanted to find the ideal and get out of this shadowy world. Uh, we mentioned this in the sermon, that samsara is the cycle of in, uh, reincarnation. You want to get out of that, that cycle till you get to a, a, a place of nothingness. Um, even even our, um, 
uh, your, your atheist friends who, who dive maybe deep into a secular physical world are saying that the physical doesn't really matter. Like, I can have sex with whomever I want as often as I want because in the end it doesn't really matter. It's just stuff and it's gone, right? So the physical has no meaning in most other philosophies and religions. That God would take on flesh means that the body is good, the physical world is good, and I'm allowed to enjoy it. Every other religion has some sort of taboo against something physical, whether it be sex, alcohol, caffeine, whatever it is. Not Christianity. You may abstain like fasting for a little bit to, to remind yourself of the, of the sacrifice of, of Jesus on the cross. But in Christianity, on a good day, we don't say that you abstaining from sex or abstaining from food makes you something holier than anybody else, unless you're a Catholic priest. We'll leave that for a different time, right? This is, this is fundamentally different. You know what that means? You're allowed to have a good time. You're allowed to enjoy these things without guilt. Do you get the difference? I mean, that's, that is mind-boggling when you think about it. It really opens up the world in freedom. And when we think about God's Ten Commandments, he's not being a prude saying uh, sex is dirty and, and stuff is bad and don't, don't love stuff and all that kind of stuff. What he is doing is saying, I'm putting parameters around the gift so you don't mess it up. This is how I say it to the, to the college kids, to, just to make them squirm because it's awkward for a middle-aged guy to talk about this. But I'll say, uh, so the Sixth Commandment, you shall not you know, commit adultery and stuff. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is not a prude and being anti-sex and, and stuff. He actually wants you to have good sex. He would rather you not have a walk of shame. So he puts parameters around there so that you understand its beauty and you enjoy it in the concept of married love rather than treating it just like a bodily function, which is what our world thinks about. Because sex is not just a body thing, but it's a soul thing. Right? So he is not anti-sex. He's more pro-sex than you are. Right? And then I make it really awkward and I go, listen, you're all beautiful now, but just wait. <laughs> you know, and I, <coughs> and I go, listen, very quickly, my friends, the only people that are going to want to have sex with you is somebody who actually loves you, all right? So do it in marriage, all right? And they're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. All right. So if God's evangelical, that means that he is incarnational, he comes to us, and he redeems the world for us and gives it back to us to enjoy. And I cannot overestimate that how important that was in the natural world, or in the ancient world. What made me one last thing? So I, get, I think we mentioned this last time I was here, that the idea of when Moses said, uh, after God created uh, the heavens and the earth, after each day he said, this is good, this is good, this is good, and you're like, we get it, dude. You know, Like, why do you keep telling us that? Because at that time, the physical was seen as a curse. And so the Genesis account is just crazy for those people. Right? And you're like, what are you talking about? This world is bad. This world is bad. Why can you call it good? That really was a that was really was a fresh way of thinking about things. And I'm willing to bet that it's a fresh way for you too, once in a while, to say, you know what, this physical world is good, even though I gotta go to the hospital to get, you know, to get another hip replacement. And then you keep your eye on the resurrection, 
where you know it's going to be redeemed. All right, anything on, on incarnational there? I mean, we could go, we could write volumes on the incarnation. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so uh, Martin Chemnitz, yes, The Two Natures of Christ. Uh, it's, it's a good book, but not that thick. And um, talks about that, right? That, uh, that, that Christ is 100% human, right? And, and, and yet 100% divine. And, and thanks for bringing that up because there's a theological thing there that Jesus has to be completely human for this salvation to work, at least the way God has set it up. Um, and the reason for that is you need to be right with God to go into heaven. Like, uh, you don't get to go into heaven with your sin. So sinners don't go to heaven. Only the righteous go to heaven, right? And we see this in the Bible, right? The, the evildoers are sent to hell. And you're like, well, that stinks, right? So it's not like God's like, hey, wink, wink for you Christians, I'll let you in. No, he makes you righteous. How? Well, he washes your sin away, and then he gives you the righteousness of Christ. So the righteousness of Christ is really important because that becomes my rightness, my righteousness with God. If, if, if Christ's righteousness doesn't count, then I'm in deep trouble. So when Christ comes down here, he has to be fully human and live perfectly. Otherwise, his righteous, perfect life is kind of illegitimate, right? Like if God came down here and was perfect, you're like, so you're God. Big deal. Walk a mile in my shoes. So we did. So we did. So he's got to be human, and he's got to be divine, right? Because plenty of people have died for you, and not just in the military, but people died building bridges. People have died in, uh, uh, you know, we figured out uh, better medicine because of it. You're here, and there's a trail of blood, right? But none of those deaths ever halted your death or took away your sin. You needed a divine death. And so human and divine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that's, uh, and every, well, I love doing this, like, raise your hand if you believe that Mary is the mother of God, <laughs> right? I love doing that in class, because nobody raised, nobody wants to raise their hand, and then I said, well, you're all heretics, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we would have burned you at the stake a few hundred years ago, I'm, we're not going to, but, you know, it, you have to say that, because he's got to be fully human, and, and, and even transubstantiation, just for that's the Catholic doctrine that it's, it's not bread and body, but rather it's only body. It's no longer bread, even though you taste and smell and see bread and wine. It's, it's a form of, a subtle form of what we call docetism. It only seems like bread. Jesus only seems to be human being. Now, that's a problem, 
right? That's a problem. And I think it, no matter how you mess this up, it devolves to law because then, then Jesus is just the example I'm trying to follow instead of my replacement, right? I love doing this too, like, you know, what would Jesus do that whole thing, you know, and go, first of all, you're setting yourself up for a really big fall, <laughs> you know? Um, but also, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that you should not do because he's fully God. Like, Jesus called his mother woman. Don't do that. Don't do that. Right? He's different. Right? <laughs> All right. I never tried it. <laughs> um, I did have joking to my wife. Never again. All right. All right. Um, anything else on that? I mean, there's, I, this is a whole series of Bible class on its own. Now the next one's a little trickier, and that's sacramental. So it seems to me, if God is evangelical, that means he, wants, he means he wants all men to be saved, that he's got to come down here because I can't go to him. It's got to be gift. And so it makes sense, at least, that he would take on flesh all the way to me. Well, the problem is, is Jesus ascended into heaven. <laughs> His flesh went to heaven. So um, am I left now with just sort of a vague spirituality? No, because when he continues to come to us, in a physical way. And so I would argue that the word sacramental, at least in this context, is broader than just baptism, Holy Communion, and that kind of stuff. But it's a whole way of how he operates through the church, and that is through physical means. So we tend to, in the Lutheran church and, and beyond, um, tend to use Augustine's uh, definition of a sacrament. And the sacrament is this. Uh, it's, a, it's an earthly thing, like water, and, you, and it's attached to, or the word, promise word, is attached to that earthly thing. So in baptism it is, uh, I baptize, that is, I wash you, a promise, I wash your sins away, and that equals God's grace. So far, so good. It's not a biblical, necessarily a biblical definition in the sense that I can point to one passage for that, but it, it, it tells us what's going on there with baptism and Holy Communion. Um, I'm going to broaden that a little bit and say include even the word is sacramental. And what I mean by that is, uh, is that it's, it's a physical reality. Um, now, you're like, what are you talking about? Well, think about it. Um, there could have been some sort of, you climb a high mountain and you find some sort of enlightenment. Or God, like he did with the, the ancient, or the Gnostics claim he did, is just zap you with a special knowledge right? Um, no, he comes to you once again in physical means. It's ink on a paper. It's a person with a voice. And, and the words travel on, so to speak, the sounds travel on airwaves and beat upon your eardrums. It's a physical reality. I'm having a physical experience with the word. It's not just an only spiritual thing. <coughs> Maybe kind of go down that rabbit hole just really quickly. Uh, the word sacrament is not found in the Bible unless you speak Latin. And then um, we do have the word sacramentum used to, as a translation of the Greek word mysterium, which is where we get the word mystery. So St. Paul's letter to the Colossians talks about uh, this mystery being Christ. So sacramentum equals Christ. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm fudging a little bit here, but it kind of it makes sense to me. There's one sacrament, and that is Christ. 
And then there's the sacramental realities of how Christ is delivered to me. Communion, baptism, I would argue absolution. And if, and if we want to stretch it a little bit, the word, he is the word. He is the true baptizer. It is his body and blood. He's the true absolver. That's why Pastor Bader says that crazy thing, I forgive you. <laughs> Who do you think you are, pal? Right? Well, he's the, he's the, he's the voice of Christ at that moment. Right? So that, you know, notice he doesn't say, uh, God loves you, I think, or God forgives you. He's like, for you, right there, that specific sin, I forgive you. There's no, there's no debate about it. Right? So in these physical things, the physical minister, the physical, even beyond that, the family, the physical water, the physical bread and wine, the physical Bible, the, 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 the physical um, um, experience you have with the word of God that is preached is so that there's no degree of separation between the sinner and God's grace, between you and God. Closes. Closes. So just like he came down and took flesh and was this close to you and me, he walked the same earth. So he closes the gap with word and sacrament. He is sacramental, so he is one with you. Now think about all of those, all of those things we just said. Baptism is a death and resurrection into Jesus Christ. St. Paul in Romans chapter 6, all of those of you who have been baptized with Christ Jesus have been died crucified and buried. You can't get more intimate than that. Um, he says, eat my body and drink my blood. Okay, maybe you can get more intimate than that. I wash you. I give you a bath. That's very intimate. Right? I speak to you. Right? Uh, that's maybe the most intimate thing. Right? That when you speak to somebody, that's how you connect to them. So I, I find this sacramental nature of God him coming to me. And that makes sense because I can't come. I can't go to him. I can't go to him. I don't seek him. He finds me. Right? Okay. So, uh, you dig in that? Sacramental? I think there's something there. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool. I'm coming into the presence of God thing. All right. So now, it makes sense to me then, if God is evangelical, and so he's got a, he wants me to, he wants me to be in heaven, and he knows that I'm, I'm too much of a stubborn SOB to go to him. And I can't do it anyway. He's got to come to me, incarnation. He's got to keep coming to me because of the aforementioned stubbornness. And so a sacramental word, and he keeps coming to me. Now, if, if he's really here then, if we truly believe he's the true baptizer and the true absolver, and he's the word of God, and it's actually his body and blood here, um, that, that he is occupying time and space, and I am occupying time and space, then we would be liturgical. And what I mean by that is that we have certain traditions and rites that teach us and are, are, that grow out of the reality that God is present. Now, if we believe that God is up in heaven and that's where he remains... I think Sunday morning takes on a different kind of vibe. But if I believe he's on the altar and he is present with me, not just in a uh, vague way, but in a very real way, um, we, we tend to, to think about our, our time here in a little different way. We are liturgical. Um, I teach worship at the, at the college, and, and on the first 
first day, I, I talk about this, and, and I say, um, we talk about tradition and rights and all this kind of stuff, and, and we Americans who, who left behind all of those churches and the monarchy and all of that, we're, we're free individuals and we don't like all of that, um, that, that um, pomp and circumstance kind of thing, which I, I kind of dig a little bit that we're free from that. We tend to say to anything that's traditional or it, we think that's old and, and, and stuffy and stuff like that. But I make the point that I say, um, you can't throw away rites and rituals and traditions. Like, that's impossible. And, and the reason is because you occupy, occupy time and space. So you have to have a calendar. A and you have to do stuff. You have to, you have to wear something, please do. Yeah? You, you have to do something, right? And so if you gather in a place at a specific time to do something, you have rites, you have rituals, you have traditions. The tradition may only be five minutes old, right? But it's still something you have to do. And so instead of trying to run away from the physical, the reality that I'm in time and space, and God has entered time and space, incarnation, sacramental, um, but rather we, we go the other way and we, we dive in and love that reality and try to do it the best we can. Not in a legalistic way, but rather we say, okay, um, these traditions, are, uh, we have to have them. How can, we, how can we honor the past, learn from the past? How can we teach the uh, people in the present and hand this down to the future? Uh, what's important to us? You know what's important to us? The Word of God and baptism and Holy Communion. Right? Those, are, those are important. So what's the, what's the three um, pieces of furniture behind me? Altar, pulpit, pulpit, and font. The very nature of how we do stuff and how we design our churches teaches us something, right? And so it makes sense that we are liturgical. I don't mean high church, low church, that's all. That's all different, different topics. and I just mean that we understand God is here and that what we do teaches the people and reflects what we believe. And so we should be thoughtful about it, right? So um, I, I know Pastor Bader has, been, has done a good job here just by looking at the bulletin and knowing him, but uh, I'll speak for him um, and probably for the rest of you. Um, nobody taught me any of this when I was growing up. I'm fourth-generation pastor, and nobody told me why we sang the Sanctus. We just did it. We just did it, right? And, and that becomes bad ritual. That becomes just a tradition. We just, why do we sing that? Because we always sing it. Shut up and sit down, right? <laughs> That's, and you can understand why people are like, let's throw that tradition out. So I think that the, the best thing to do is to say, we're going to have tradition. We don't have an option. Let's teach it. Let's teach it. Why do you sing the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy? Why, why is the Lord's Prayer there? Why do we, why do we, why does that, why does that font, how many, how many sides does that font have? Don't look at it. Eight. Why? Right? Ask that question and teach that, right? And that, 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 that it totally envelops us, doesn't it? Right? I mean, it gives us a sense of the space and it gives us a sense of symbolism and all that's so beautiful, Right? There was eight people in the ark. And St. Peter says, the flood is like baptism that washes away, but saves the people in the ark. And he told there's eight in all, and so many baptismal fonts have 
eight sides, right? That stuff's cool, right? That stuff's good, only if you teach it, right? Okay, so liturgical. Anybody want to make a comment on, on liturgical? I want to get you out here in a good time because you guys got put, put the tree away and I got to fly to Wisconsin, so... By liturgical, yeah. So you're asking me, what do I mean by liturgical? Yes. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I think um, what do we mean by liturgical? I mean um, that we have certain traditions and rites and rituals uh, that are handed down to us and that teach us the faith. So it's not just a head knowledge thing, right? That I. I, I see the doctrine and the catechism, but that when I come to church, I'm, I'm, I sing, I see symbols, and this teaches the faith. Is that kind of helpful? I'm taught the faith not just as a thinking thing, which is a modern concept, but I'm a whole person, right? And so when I come to church in, at Christmas, I expect to see that thing there. And I know why it's there. Right, um, instead of just a just a plain room kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I've heard you say this. Maybe it's not in your guys' podcast, but I think it's, like, it's kind of a narrow-minded thing, in my understanding now, to say there are liturgical churches yeah. and non-liturgical churches. Yeah. I, I've heard you say things like every church has a liturgy, and even beyond that, every human being yep. has a liturgy because essentially it just means like there, there's a simple way you structure. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> if we would say we're a non-liturgical church, and th in the history of the church this has happened, especially in the Radical Reformation in Europe, um, no stained glass, nothing but a pulpit, um, only the only music will be uh, psalms, because that's the only music from the Bible, so, and it's going to be a cappella, no, no instruments or whatever. And so going far away from the pomp and circumstance of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, as plain as possible. That plainness is your liturgy. And it, and, it, and it tells me about what you believe. And my point is, you can't get away from liturgy. Because you're a person that occupies time and space. So I'm not here to argue about what's better and what's worse. Um, we are free in these matters. But I don't think it's wise for us just to say, well, it doesn't matter, so we're not going to do anything. Impossible. And I think um, you're missing a great opportunity to teach, right? Everybody learns in different ways, right? Some of you are taken by that symbolism. Some of you are, are not. That's fine. But it's a way that God comes to you. Yes? And you know this better than the rest of us because you lived in other places. Yeah. Um, I like to say this at class too because there's this idea like this is a white Christian Northern European thing. And I go, actually it's Jewish if it's anything, but we won't go down that road. 
but to say on any given Sunday there is a boy in Buenos Aires and somebody in Zambia and somebody in Pittsburgh who are saying and doing some of the same exact things. It is the most diverse at once and yet most ecumenical, like universal thing, perhaps in the history of the world. Like even more than McDonald's and blue jeans. Right? You, the prayer that was prayed today, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing was prayed by Martin Luther, <laughs> certainly my grandparents and great-grandparents and people that I never knew. That is something that in Thousand Oaks, we prayed something that, that somebody in Buenos Aires prayed today. That's cool, right? Yeah, very good. All right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're talking about like uh, maybe more of a Pentecostal kind of church. Um, there no liturgy, let the Holy Spirit take on individual person is a liturgy, right? And it, and it says something about their doctrine, that their doctrine is that the Holy Spirit is going to come to us without physical means. Now, can the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's going to do? Sure. But the, the Bible has told me, here is where the Holy Spirit's, I know this for sure, the Word of God, right? Baptism, Holy Communion, absolution. And so, I like to think that the spiritual, his standard modus operandi, is to use physical things, even if it's just a voice or somehow a word. Maybe a supernatural word from an angel, but it's still, but it's still a, a word. And I think that grounds us in, in the reality of things. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me keep on moving, unless anybody else... Okay. Uh, the last two are not sort of like the logical kind of like, it seems to me, evangelical, yeah, that... Incarnational, yeah. Sacramental, yeah. Liturgical. Well, these last two things are kind of add-ons, but I think they flow. If God is incarnational, that means that Christianity is historical. That this happened in a time and place. So you just heard, you know, a few weeks ago in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Christianity does not, is not, here, here's some sort of here, here's some sort of meta-narrative or uh, um, um, some sort of story, some sort of mythological thing that gives us a sense of belonging as a, as a group, as a tribe, as a culture um, that may or may not be true. Um, no, this is, this is, in this specific time and place, this happened. Like, Christianity is a claim on reality, right? Um, you know, for most religions, it doesn't really matter if these stories are true or not. It's not their gig. That doesn't matter to them, right? Um, it, it, does it really matter that, you know, if, does it really matter that uh, the Buddha maybe didn't actually exist? Not really. The teachings are still there. Does it matter if we, if we know where he was born or if he really did, you know, uh, did the things that, that tradition tells us? Not really. Because the, the Buddhism still stands as what it's trying to accomplish. Not so for Christianity. Christianity says, if this didn't really happen, then the whole thing falls apart. Right? And so notice again the physical and the spiritual coming back together. Christianity answers that question with an historic answer. This person took on flesh in a very real place and time and did something about your physical problem of sin and was resurrected so that your body could be resurrected, right? This, I find great comfort. 
um, uh, <clears throat> because my faith and my, therefore my future in heaven does not depend on my faith. My faith does not depend upon my faith. <laughs> That's really good because some days I, gotta, I, some days I have a bad Jesus day. <laughs> you know, you doubt or things aren't going right or you're like, uh, you know, Jesus would be really great if you came 10 years ago, right? Um, sometimes you lament and you're angry at God or whatever. And then I look at my, um, my bedroom wall where my baptismal certificate hangs and I know that on uh, uh, um, that April 18, 1978, in St. Louis County, Missouri, I was baptized. And ain't nothing going to change that because that's an historic fact. That's an historic fact. You can't unring that bell. So I don't know what the devil's got for me tomorrow, but, you know, he can't change that. That's an historic reality. So my faith and my hope and my my confidence is not based on uh, what's going to happen tomorrow or how I feel towards Jesus tomorrow or if I, if, I, if, I, if I follow the right prayers tomorrow or whatever, right? It's, it's a solid reality, right? So that historical nature of Christianity, A, is saying, this is real, Jesus is real, this, actually, this is a claim on reality, not some mythological story or whatever that you can just, you know, hop from Hinduism to Buddhism to Confucianism and, and put it together and maybe have a fine life and then die. No, this is a, a historic reality. And the historic reality of my salvation, particularly my baptism, is, is just as real as yesterday's stock market prices and the basketball score from the Lakers losing again or whatever, you know? That's a big deal. Uh, the last one, um, I think, again, doesn't fit just kind of that boom, boom, boom logically, but um, if God is, his modus operandi is to be historical and physical and real, take on flesh, come to us in very real ways, word and, and meal and stuff like that, uh, then it makes sense that he, in, when he carries out his love in our day-to-day -day lives, that would also uh, be a physical reality that he, he, he is going to work through people in a vocational way. So just a quick summary of vocation. It means calling. God calls people to carry out his love in the world. So he told me, uh, or let's, let's do Pastor Bader. He said, Pastor Bader, I got some people in Thousand Oaks. Uh, I want them to be fed with, uh, with the scripture and the word of God. And, and Noah, you're my man on the, you're my man. You're my boots on the ground there, right? So it's God through Pastor Vader to you, just like it is God's love through you to your spouse, just like it is God's love through the farmer to us so that we don't starve to death, right? So notice that physical modus operandi is also a hidden modus operandi, right? So we call this the masks of God. So God hides behind masks. He hides behind the mask of the preacher. He hides behind the mask of the water, of the bread and the wine. Um, he hides in, in plain sights in the scriptures, right? Um, but he also hides behind father, mother, carpenter, doctor, and all of these kinds of things. So the whole kind of thing here is 
there seems to be a modus operandi that God has, and that is to A, use physical things to accomplish spiritual things, and that he uses um, ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary things. And in that way, he is close and he is intimate with us, feeding us, teaching us, and loving us, and saving us even. Now, when I say that this is God's modus operandi, this does not mean that it is uh, exclusive of everything else. Well, certainly we can find things in the Bible where God says, yeah, I'm just going to come down with a miracle. <laughs> you know? He's like, yeah, I'm just going to come down and I'm, I'm bringing lightning and fire and stuff like that. Um, instead of uh, working through the prophets, working through Abraham, working through Peter, working through you. But usually, that's why I say his standard modus operandi, his mode of operation, is to use lowly people like you and me. What does that do to your self-esteem? What does that do to your pride in your day-to-day -day life? Well, I would think it would go from here to here. And I don't need to seek out all of these other ways of justification. Money, prestige, power, all, you just name all those things that we've been warning you about in catechism class and Sunday school. For the, but rather, you are valuable in God's eyes because he has saved you and he uses you. So, all right. So, um, I don't know where, what, you guys are like on just California lazy. I mean, in Wisconsin, we're like, dun, 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 dun. you guys are just kind of, you know, let's go to the beach, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know if I'm overtime, I'm undertime, or whatever. <coughs> right on time. So, does anybody want the last word? Pastor Bay, do you want the last word? Anybody want the last word? So, um, wonderful. Thanks again for having me. Why don't we end in prayer? Would that be okay? All right. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your son Jesus Christ and his epiphany that he has revealed to us. I personally thank you for uh, the people of Prince of Peace in Thousand Oaks. Uh, this church is near and dear to my family's heart, and I thank you that it's carried on in such faithful people. Um, pray for Phineas. We pray for uh, Pastor Bader and his family. Um, work through the vocations of nurses and doctors and so Phineas can come home. Um, we ask that no matter what happens, though, that you remind all of us that we have a resurrection from the dead and we have eternity in heaven because of Christ and we are allowed to take chances, even taking chances on love and everything's going to be okay in the end. We thank you for that peace. We thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.